Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Press Row. Behind the scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now, here's your host, Jonah Siegel. Welcome back in the Press Row. Jonah Siegel here out in Seattle. Been a crazy week again. Spent most of it on airplanes out of town, freezing my butt off in Chicago. Uh, this week in the press row, doing a little baseball. This is uh, Winter Wonderland down in Nashville. Spring training. Sorry, it's not spring training. Winter meetings going on and uh, lots of talks focused on your Toronto Blue Jays. And this week, very, very privileged to have one of my favorite scribes, uh, baseball talking heads, somebody I grew up. Uh, following in the Toronto Star and other places, Richard Griffin join us. Um, I think you'll be blown away by his insight, everything he has to say, and of course, all the nuttiness surrounding Shohei Otani. Will he? Should he? May he? Buckle up, Richard Griffin, in the press row. Welcome back in the press row, Jonas Siegel here in a rare winter. I think we're in winter. Uh, sunny day here in Seattle. I am uh, thrilled. Another one of those times where I've admired somebody from afar. I, I've followed him for years. I'm going to make him feel old. Um, but a very topical guest, a very topical guest. Uh, although the season is not going on, it is the fun season, the silly season, if you will. He is... Uh, currently a co-host of Exit Philosophy and the author of Grips the Pitch. He is none other than Richard Griffin. Rich, how are you? I'm good, Jonah. How are you? Awesome. So for those of you who don't know, um, growing up in Toronto as a Blue Jay fan, there were really two people who covered the Blue Jays on the print side. One of them is is sitting across from me virtually, and the other was Bob Elliott. And uh, back then, that's how you learned about baseball, and that's how you followed the Blue Jays. You had Tom and Jerry on the air, and you had Bob and, and Richard, really. Um, so let me first start by kissing your ass a little bit and saying thank you for your years of service. Uh, I will admit that I am not a baseball fan. I am a Blue Jay fan. You've probably heard that before. I was fortunate. I grew up in Toronto. I started at Exhibition Stadium. I had a grandfather who didn't know what to do with me down in Fort Lauderdale on those cold winter breaks when I was down there visiting him. He used to take me to see the, uh, the, the I think it was the Yankees he used to train down in, in, in Lauderdale back then, 70s, right. 80s. And he taught me how to score a game in a program with a pencil before we had these things called phones. Um, but I love going to games now. I live in Seattle. I love it's a, the best place for me to go with a buddy or family and not sit on the cell phone and just enjoy the night. The game to me is secondary, but I'm a diehard Blue Jay fan. Uh, so thank you. You have, have taught me a lot about the game, and uh, I'm really appreciative for all that you have done and really happy to have you here with me today. Well, I, I've double and thank you for the compliments. But Bob Elliott, a uh, good friend of mine, even though we worked at opposing newspapers. But it's funny, the background on that, because 
Bob started with the Ottawa Citizen covering Montreal Expos. And I was the PR guy there, obviously. And he would come to spring training and then come in from Ottawa for homestands. And uh, he was quite uncertain of his own ability. And, and I helped him sort of come to grips with ego. And uh, at one point, he was offered a job in the Toronto Sun. And he came to me and said, Rich, I, I don't think I can go. I don't think I'm good enough. I said, if you don't go, you'll regret it. You know, one of those famous, you'll regret it, maybe not now, <laughs> but for the rest <laughs> of your life. And he went down there and then uh, probably 12, 13 years later, I came down and all of a sudden we weren't friends working together. We were on opposite sides of the fence and it took us about two or three years to get together and to get back to where we had been when I was a PR guy in, uh, in Montreal. But the thing is that we didn't come at the same issue the same way. And that helped. I mean, he wrote it his own style. I wrote my style and it was the same topic, but we covered it obviously well enough for you to learn baseball. <laughs> and, appre and appreciate it. Yeah. Um, great. Appreciate it, John. And so you've made the pivot twice. If I, if I'm not mistaken, um, you went from the team side to the beat side and then the beat side to the team side, and and here we are today. How different you? It's, for those who don't know, Richard covered. Sorry, Richard was with the Expos uh, for a very long time. Uh, again, apologies. Uh, Twenty-two years with the Expos put some uh, rings around the tree, if you will. How different was the transition the first time versus the second? Well. Yeah, so that was 1973. Um, it was a summer job. I was going to Concordia and didn't like the prospects of becoming an accountant, which my dad wanted me to be. So uh, I got a summer job with the Expos. And then after one part-time season, got hired full-time. So I was writing the media guide. I was writing the game notes um, at the age of 20, 21. And uh, created it probably didn't learn. I created my own way of doing it because it was unique. We began traveling every game in 1978. We had a very limited staff. I think the total employee base of the Expos until the time I left was 50 or fewer. And I think that the current Blue Jays have 50 people in food concessions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, I think it was a tougher transition going from writing back to PR than it was going from PR to writing. Because like I said, I was writing uh, game notes. I was writing media guides. I was lending my quirky observations to both of those at a time when everybody was taking it very, very seriously. And so I brought that into uh, being a columnist with the star and, and nobody had ever made that jump before going from club PR to major newspaper sports columnist. When I joined the star, it was the seventh 
largest circulation newspaper in North America. And uh, so nobody had ever seen that transition before. And I managed to last 24, 25 seasons. Um, and then made the jump back uh, for four years with the Blue Jays. And this was my first year not either associated with a, a mainstream newspaper or with a, a ball club. And yeah, so definitely the, the transition back to the Blue Jays, back to a team PR, because it became literally a team PR. And in Montreal, I was sort of anything I thought was what happened but there was more collaboration expected more of a process when i got back to the uh, to the blue jays and i'm sure you've heard those words with regard to the blue jays with regard to major pro sports right. collaboration and process and uh, i was the process and the collaboration back in montreal so you cover the blue jays as one of two primary beat guys you make appearances on radio and you watch the the team really grow up and mature in a market and develop a fan base not just in toronto not just in southwest ontario but coast to coast across canada culminating in not one but two world series and then whatever we're going to call what's happened in between Writers and journalists aren't supposed to be fans, but it had to be gratifying to a certain degree to watch the baby grow up and take those steps to championship years a little bit. Well, I've always explained it as whether you're covering or whether you're working for a team that you're more fans of individuals than you are of the team. So, if there's a dozen individuals on those Blue Jays teams that I was covering that I, I really liked, um, you know, you're never close friends with them, but but friendly enough. Um, that's what you're happy for. You're happy for the John McDonald's, the Carlos Delgado's, the, you know, the people that you you come to know and uh, appreciate for for how what they bring to the game and how they play the game. But to me, it was, I got there in 1995. So during the strike, um, there was no team when I joined the star. There was no, I mean, it was replacement players. I joined the star in January of 95, went to spring training, not knowing anybody down there, especially the players. And they weren't in uniform. They weren't working out. But to me, that period from 95 to through 2012 was sort of a no man's land of Blue Jays history. And in 2013, when Alex Anthopoulos went out and, and grabbed a bunch of guys and Ari, Ari Dickey and Jose Reyes and Josh Johnson and, and made all those deals, that to me is when the Jays became phase two of of the franchise. I mean, phase one was from the mid eighties or from the expansion year 77 through the mid eighties, when they contended through the world series years with Cito. And then they went because of the strike, they went into 
a no man's land for two dozen years with J.P. Ricciardi and whatever. And uh, so 2013 to me has been the start of another era. And you can see it on the road when you go with the Blue Jays and you see a, an entirely different fan base traveling with the team. When I got there in 95, I, I remember going to Cleveland um, and the fan base was older, hanging around the hotel, outside and in the lobby, looking for autographs. And then from 2013 on, especially 2015 on, but 2013 was the beginning. It was a younger, upwardly mobile, more women, more more couples. And they weren't going to hang around the lobby and get autographs. They were going to have a good time to party. I mean, I, I was sort of after games, I would be looking for where to where to party at. Right. And I would end up in a spot and there'd be like a hundred Blue Jays fans having a good time and it would be nowhere near the team hotel. So to me, that's the difference. And then those, those years between 95 to 2012 were sort of like, that was when legitimately the Blue Jays were looking for handouts because they were a small to mid market team. And now we're finding out it was all BS. <laughs> yeah. <You know, laughs> This is a 35 million uh, following in Canada. Uh, the numbers on Sportsnet, the, the the audience on Sportsnet eclipses every Yes Network broadcast with the Yankees. So don't tell me that it's a small market. And they're finally recognizing it and moving forward and, and approaching themselves and free agency that way. So that's an interesting pivot because... There, there's this out there's this not there's this elephant in the room about coming to Toronto You're, you've been a journalist and you've been with the team the winter meetings are going on right now and we just know that it, it we, we're in a, you know, I'm not you're in a foreign country it is different and whether we like this is my this is my take whether we like to admit it or not Going through customs every time is a pain in the butt. The money being a different color is a pain in the butt. And the fact that you don't get ESPN is a different is different. And the fact that kids have to learn French in school is different. Um, perceived taxes are different. We may not give any of those things any credibility, but they are a reality that the other teams in the league don't have to contend with. So they may have the money, but it is something that is a factor, is it not? That when the when they're meeting with guys this week, the Toronto factor, the Canada factor, is a is a legitimate thing. I remember uh, Alex Anthopoulos when he was GM, and they brought in the Vancouver uh, franchise to be a Class A franchise. I said, you know, isn't it difficult? Asked Alex, isn't it difficult, sort of having one team? in canada and everybody's got to cross the border and come up and uh, the visiting teams all have to have their passports and everything like that and his his answer was that we we put our best prospects there because we want them to get used to loonies and toonies in their pocket and i thought that was brilliant but in terms of free agency i think i mean honestly i think that the raptors 
and the reaction of visiting teams to Toronto. And that has helped the perception of the city and of playing in Toronto. Um, long ago, even when I was still in Montreal, they've found ways to balance the tax problem. You know, you're paying half your taxes in Canada and half your income taxes in the States. And it ended up that, you know, playing in California, playing in some other states was more expensive than playing in Canada once you had your your financial people looking at it. So that wasn't a problem. I traveled for four years with the Blue Jays on their charters, and they make it as easy as they can in terms of clearing customs. Uh, Mike Shaw, the traveling secretary, had flights coming back, landed at a private air terminal. And, you know, they, they checked, they had customs people there, but it was on the way from the plane to the bus to go to the stadium. And that was the extent of uh, the inconvenience of coming back into Canada. And Montreal and Toronto, both franchises, were well aware of the family aspect of it. And it's been easier, I believe, for them both franchises to attract families because of the safer conditions, because they hired, they always had somebody who was there specifically to work with the wives and the kids and the families. And so it's been a little extra effort, but less and less of a sort of, I mean, you look at Hinjin Ryu, like how did they get him to come they had to sell Toronto. They had to sell coming to Canada. They had to sell training in Florida. And they did a great job of that. And they had to work with Scott Boris and all that. So, you know, there's another thing. I think Scott Boris uh, being able to dent that market of his clients with Ryu uh, was turning another page in moving forward for the franchise. And now they're not scared of Boris. Boris isn't scared of the Jays in Toronto. They don't have that... Paul Beeston versus Boris, where he screwed Paxton out of his rookie year at rookie year, freshman year at Kentucky. And yeah, so it, I mean, it, it it is there and it is, as you said, the elephant in the room. But I think that they have uh, let a bunch of mice loose in that room and the elephants are sort of not as scary as they were. So we're at this fascinating inflection point for the franchise um you know the current administration came in at a controversial under controversial terms right edward jr allegedly you know went behind people's backs made phone calls to jerry reinsdorf you know allegedly allegedly right <laughs> um Allegedly, yet very publicly, uh, whatever right. that means. Anthopolis was beloved, Canadian, had the top gig. Team eventually that season did really well. And, you know, I think fair to say, my words, with mixed results thus far, and it seems that popularity for this duo wall had been on the incline, the results at the end of this year really boiled over to decline. 
Do you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think it's accurate, but I, I think it's less Mark Shapiro than it is Ross Atkins. Um, it was unfortunate the way that Shapiro came in and and assumed that that he would be in charge of Anthopolis and he would make the final call, even though Anthopolis had done a great job in building the franchise to where I think these guys are taking advantage of it. But in dealing with Shapiro, I understand that he loves, I mean, he, he told me as a PR guy, he said, try and push our assistant GMs out front because I like them to have a public profile and I like them to get jobs with other teams and I like to populate the game with, and he didn't say with people that I churn out, but that's the bottom line. That That's the feeling. And I mean, I like Ross, but when Shapiro came over, there had already been maybe the top three candidates for GM had been already taken that, that summer, that winter. And so is does that mean ross atkins wasn't on the podium of potential gms well perhaps and you know he's done i i think he's has a lot of say on player acquisition but it, it comes down to mark shapiro running to check with the rogers people and like you said it's 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 had mixed results you know, 2016 was basically Anthopolis' team, and they were trying to dismantle it by then anyway. And then 2019 was was Charlie Montoya's first year and 95 losses, and they've built it back up since then. But, you know, like they've had more money to spend. They've had more opportunity to go out and find winners. And, and like you said, the end of this season with Barrios being pulled out of that that game after 12 hitters because there was a lane for Kikuchi and it was a chance for the Blue Jays front office people to show how damn smart they were when in fact they were going to need to do the same thing the next day. If they had won that game with Barrios dealing, uh, they would have had to find another guy to go in with Bassett pitching the next day. I mean, who's saying Bassett would have been better than Barrios, but they were using up all their bullets in that game where it didn't seem like they needed to and shocking players and shocking Barrios when he had his family there and was, was like, this could have been a defining career moment going back to where he started and shoving it up their ass, you know, but yeah, so it hasn't been great. It hasn't been perfect, but he's only had nine years. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, this is his ninth. This is the uh, the uh, ruling duo's ninth season. So the feeling here is that they better do something this year, at least win a round of the playoffs. So you're the PR guy. Forget for a second what went on the field, but the PR guy, you're sitting there. They do what they do. As a baseball guy, that would drive you knocking futs. I get that. But you're the PR guy. So they do what they do. It implodes. And then you're part of a, a media company that I imagine has a very big public relations department. And you're the public relations department for the baseball team. And the GM goes out 
and does what he does. What's your reaction? I think I had four years with the Jays to come to the conclusion is that you can't run a major professional sports franchise like a communications giant. You can't run the PR of a day-by-day, everyone knows better than the GM. Like when you're talking about cell phones, your your normal consumer doesn't have an opinion. They just get their bills and they, they can switch companies. Or, But in baseball, in sports, in hockey, everybody has an opinion. Everybody knows. And if you get your back up as a front office and then try and maybe mislead or, or sort of steer in one direction, there are fans, there are people in, in media, social media, running their little podcasts who know more than you think they know. And I think that that is a big mistake. Uh, running a major professional sports team PR wise, like you would a Rogers Corp or something like that. And I think that it's just ongoing. That's all. So then the, then Shapiro comes out and does his thing. Did you think that repaired things or made it worse? Um, in October when he yeah. did his wrap up? Correct. I think they I think they get by with being able to say that they're not lying about things. I think it's all semantics. I think when when Roz Atkins said that when Kikuchi got up to warm up in the third inning, he was as surprised as everybody else. And semantically that might be correct because he had given them the choice of we want Kikuchi to come in at that spot. It could be the first time through the order. It could be the second time through the order. It could be the third time you make that decision. So for him to say that is sort of, I mean, he knew it was going to happen, but he can say, well, I just said, I didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, but I think he did make sure that, that uh, John Schneider not took the fall but the decision was his. And, and I mean, having been there for four years, I understand what he was trying to do. He was trying to, because people say, well, the manager under the analytics people, the manager is not making any decisions. So he was trying to say, well, the manager making decisions, he made that decision, but that's not helping John Snyder. <laughs> and yeah. So uh, the fact of Shapiro coming out, Shapiro, that was always the way it was going to be. It was going to be um, Ross first and then Shapiro sort of reading the room and coming out. And that's the way it's always been. Uh, so I, I didn't see anything nefarious in that or, or sort of a reactionary. It was just going to happen. And uh, Shapiro is a much better public speaker. Do you think there's a world in which the Jays exist where one is there and the other is not? Are they completely tied to the hip? I don't think there's a world where Ross Atkins exists and Shapiro does not, but I, I know there's a world where Shapiro exists and Ross Atkins does not. So uh, safe to infer that Atkins could be on a short leash should things not pan out here. Should I, should I suggest that you took things out of context? A hundred percent. 
without question. That's what I always say. I, just because Shapiro could do, could be there for as long as he wants, uh, doesn't mean there's a short leash, but I think that the expectation into the ninth year is that this team, and and they're not going to, they're not going to not make three of those four position player changes. And they're not going to not try and sign Brandon Woodruff to a, a, a deal like they did with Chad Green, where he could be in that rotation from 2025 on. They're not going to try and do things for one year and then just roll the dice after that. They're still building. They're still trying to win for the long term. Um, but so they are going to make deals because that team that they have right now, the 40 man roster they have right now on Griff's to pitch yesterday or yesterday, I did a, a column with a potential batting order. If the team started today or on the week or today or tomorrow. And that lineup is not very good. No, I think you had them at 75. So, uh... Uh, I said 72 and 90. See, I'm paying attention. See, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> but I, and that's not to say because I do believe they're going to make three of the four moves and maybe uh, fill in internally at second base. I think that that's the easiest for them to do. I mean, ideally, Juan Soto and not Shohei Otani would be the the big acquisition for me. Um, and then uh, somebody at third base that uh, that isn't a donkey defensively and can do a little bit offensively. Candelario, somebody like that. Um, and then a DH, a left-handed hitting DH that that can platoon with the right-handers when they need a day off at their position and then fill in the other position with internal because you have to you have to develop internal uh, offensive lineup players if you're going to succeed. I mean, you look at Texas Rangers with Josh Young and and they they had some other young guys uh, that stepped up, and the Jays haven't had that in a while, and they need that. Have, yeah, so they they will make moves to move from that seventy two back into the mid nineties, and the the pitching staff doesn't need much work, unless you brought in a guy primed for twenty twenty five and beyond, which which would also be Shohei Otani, but. I don't think spending $50 million a year for it. I don't think spending $50 million a year is great for the baseball fan, but it is great for Rogers Corp because they can hook up all sorts of deals in the the Japanese market. I mean, I remember when Rogers bought the Blue Jays, it was Rogers and Shaw were side by side in the cable industry in Canada. And then, Using the impetus of owning a major professional sports team, it became Rogers. And so in a world market, having the best baseball player in the world would be like buying the Blue Jays for Rogers in terms of becoming a world power in uh, in the uh, in the industry. So I think the Otani signing would be more important for Rogers than it would for winning 95 games. So you I heard you on overdrive. 
and you were the, you should see the smile on his face, everybody, if you're not watching on YouTube. Um, you were the voice of reason that I've, I've repeated repeatedly. And that is to say that it's, it's 50 million bucks US for 10 years. It's a lot of money and it doesn't make sense for the reasons that you just said. I think, you know, from my perspective, while he doesn't have the greatest reputation, my sense from you, I think, and you haven't said this to me, is that we have to give credit where credit is due. And Junior's been a pretty damn good owner for the Blue Jays. He's allowed them to spend pretty freely. Whether We can argue whether they've done a good job of that or not. He's put a ton of dough into the training facility down south. And now, whether you agree with it or not, he's put a ton of dough into the Skydome. I think that the fans should be, not the fans that own those season tickets that are having their prices jacked by twice, but the fans that care about winning should be thrilled with the fact that Edward Rogers and Rogers has sunk so much money into the Skydome. I love calling it the Skydome, just like you do, uh-huh. that they can't afford ever to go into a rebuild and tell the fans, oh yeah, we're going to build the minor leagues. We're going to, we're, we're going to take a step back for three years. They can't do that because they've got high price inventory that they need to sell. They need to sell every year. And if they take a step back, all of a sudden that revenue stream disappears and it snowballs the other way downhill or uphill. And yeah, so fans should be thrilled that there is that pressure to put a winning team on the field and in the dugout because of the renovations that they've made both in Dunedin at the player development and at the Skydome. In fact, I I mean, it goes so deep in terms of the money they've spent. I've been at the player development and it is a fabulous pleasure palace of massages and hot tubs in Florida, in Dunedin. But I've been there when uh, there's a class A game being played. And all of a sudden, the bus from the Phillies camp or the Yankees camp or the Rangers pulls up to uh, the complex and players get out. And I've seen 18, 19, 20-year-old players looking up and talking about, wow, look at this place. And these are the same players that in six, seven years are going to be free agents with a chance right. to sign somewhere else. So. You know, that's a long way down the the road, but it's all part of the advantage of having spent that money to build the facility in Florida and the advantage to fans that they have of having built the facility or improved or renovated the facility in Toronto. And I feel bad. I mean, it's going to look like Maple Leaf Gardens or whatever they call it now. I call it that too. Uh, yeah, it's going to look like that in the first period when fans haven't got to their seats yet. So the Jays will say, well, 40,000, it's a sellout. And like, you'll be looking around, where are all those people? They're downstairs, you know, because they're not real ball fans. Real ball fans really can't afford those tickets anymore. They're corporate and whatever. But it's money coming in and it's a chance for uh, Blue Jays management to build a sustainable winner. So let's go back to Otani then. So 
what I think I've heard you say is if Rogers was give if the Jays were given 50 million bucks, and again, I'm putting words in your mouth, that's not how you would spend the 50 million. There's better use of those funds because this one guy is going to do better for you on the marketing and sales side as opposed to what else you could do with the money. My question for you then would be, assuming that I'm right, he's smiling again. Uh, assuming that I'm right, what if they said you can get him and do more as well, or do you think that's unlikely? Um, I think that's unlikely, but I also, just going to Otani as a standalone, um, I did research again. Uh, 20, <laughs> 23, and I don't know if this was just published last night and this morning, the top 23 total value contracts in Major League history. So not annual average value, but total value. The top 23 contracts in the first 110 seasons that they have been in existence have produced two World Series. So two out of 110. So what's to say that Otani in his 12 years, when he reaches 40 years old, between 28 and 40, what's to say that he's going to bump that from two in 110? And there's 122 years remaining on those contracts, on those 23 contracts. So to me, that's it's a small sample size. And maybe Otani is the greatest free agent ever. But, you know, a guy that hit 44 homers, drove in 95 and 135 games, um, is that a $50 million contribution without the pitching? And you can say, well, you know, what about all the advertising and all the the the, the connections and all the, the extra money coming in? Well, that's, that's Rogers. That's not Blue Jays fans. Blue Jays fans aren't benefiting from right. that. That's right. And to me, they're, they're not going to spend beyond 250 million in payroll. And they were already, well over 200 last year and we're paying a little bit of a, uh, a penalty. So that's where I stand on that. I don't think he's worth it. He's the greatest player in the history of the game in terms of pure talent, but what he brings to the blue Jays lineup and what he brings to a championship team can't equal. You can't balance that against the total payroll that he's taking out of your budget that you could have spent somewhere else to create three wars to match up to what his war is. So do you think, do you think they're actually in on this? They're, they're pitching hard? Uh, it's like, um, to me, it's like uh, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Yeah, Nikki Haley's second, but there's like a huge gap and they're going to have to throw Edward Rogers in jail. Like they're going to throw Donald Trump in jail for the Blue Jays to, I mean, that's the comparison is that like the jail thing is uh, stupid. Right. <laughs> if I do say so. Yeah. But I mean, the difference between where the Dodgers are and where the next two teams are, I think the Cubs would be a logical landing spot for them. Um, you know, the, the, the Jays games at seven Oh seven would start at nine 
907 in the morning in Tokyo and you know that people will be watching right be like in their Times Square on the big boards and people will be watching and there's all sorts of connections streaming uh, all sorts of connections that would create revenue to balance his his salary but I just don't think that one person with the possibility of being injured and and at less like without the pitching in 2024 I wouldn't do it. So do you think having been on the inside with their staff of 50 in food services, does the rumor, does the rumor of them being finalists, which is everywhere. And I don't just mean in Toronto, it is everywhere. Does that hurt or help them? I think um, I think in the short term, it helps them. But if you go somewhere else, it hurts them because and, and I was in the room when when Ross Atkins was being asked and wouldn't he didn't mention the name Shohei Otani or Juan Soto or Brandon Woodruff or anyone. And yet I get home and I'm looking at podcasts and they're all going, oh, confirmation from Ross Atkins that they're after him. And to me, Alex Anthopoulos had it best. He said that uh, if I can, if I deny, then that's great. But if I refuse to confirm or deny, then everybody's going to go, oh, well, we've got it because he won't confirm or deny. So he didn't talk about anything in terms of rumors and the Blue Jays' involvement when he was with the Blue Jays. And it's continued with the Braves. But he would never talk about rumored involvement and that was used by agents especially scott boris and prince fielder the jays were always the mystery team because the agents knew that anthopolis would never deny it that it could sit and now with more social media it gains legs of its own coming from outside the organization coming from somewhere else it's uh, accelerated on the local market and then it drifts back out and it's accelerated in the exterior market, external market, and sort of it's like a hurricane. Right. Because if we hear it or read it or see it from Ken Rosenthal, John Morosi, or somebody Jeff south Patterson. of the, that Jeff Passan, that's the Bible, right? Yeah. Right. It's mm-hmm. like it's like in the States. If Darren Drager, Bob McKenzie, Elliot Friedman says it in hockey, it's the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, in the in the uh, meeting where Ross was asked about Otani and, and the others, um, the description of that player was presented to him. <laughs> and he said, yeah, of course, we're, you know, we're grateful to Rogers ownership because they allow us to do this. And his word of the day was nimble. And, and Mark Shapiro has been made sure that we're nimble. And and so the description of Otani and the description of Soto and the description of other players was out there without being named. And so Atkins was able to sort of talk about descriptions and since those guys fit in descriptions, it became those guys. When you're down there, how much autonomy do they have and how much 
do they need to call up to the mothership before they can do something? Or you, did were you not part well, of that? For deals like Ryu, they they did. They had to. But for you know anything if it, if they're gonna bump total payroll above the number that they had sort of preliminarily talked about, they have Mark Shapiro has to go in and explain why and where they're going with this and how it pays off and that's how it works but most deals if you they're within the parameters of what they discussed with rogers they're they're on their own but if he wants to make a trade while he's down there the magnitude of a soto can he do it or does he need to call and if he does need to call who's he calling uh well mark is down there ross is there and all of the analytics people are there and that's all they they don't need to go beyond that room for something like that because it's a one-year deal but would um, he call junior i don't think so no no but on the signing if he was going to sign your favorite player he yeah has to make for, that sure. Call. for sure it would be like they'd be popping <laughs> champagne at rogers you know how but, um what do you think the leash looks like on the manager right now um, I mean, I've always, when I've gone on overdrive or written about it, it's like Sparky Anderson had to start somewhere. Joe Torrey had to start somewhere. Terry Francona was a terrible manager until he got to Boston. Um, but I think it's an adjustment just like pitchers and hitters adjust to the new rules. I think managers who were in the minor leagues and came up through the minor leagues didn't have access to all the stats and analytics and then finally got a job like John Schneider, that he owes it to the people who put him in charge to use what the information he's given. And you get to the final four like they did this year with Bochy and Dusty and and Rob Thompson and, uh, and uh, Tori Lavolo. And they're veteran enough. They're 50, they were 58 to 74 years old. They're veteran enough to take the information and go, thanks. But when the moment arrives, they have the information in their head, but they're confident enough in their experience and ability to either ignore it or use it. And I, the, that's the long answer to the short that John Schneider has a chance but they better do something special soon. It's uh, the relationship between him and Mattingly must be pretty interesting because one's the boss and one's got the experience, no? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I don't think that Don Mattingly will ever bleed Blue Jays blue. I think he's there to keep a hand in it. I think he wants Aaron Boone's job. I think he's in the AL East and he's, you know, doing his best to help a young manager. But I think he got over the twin series pretty quickly. And yeah, so it it's a relationship that maybe is a little bit mentor and student. But it's not like uh, he needs to see John Schneider graduate magna cum laude. Right. 
So if I'm reading you correctly. There's a lot of reading going on. Yeah, well, you know, enough <laughs> enough school. Right. You seem optimistic they're going to make moves in the offseason to improve the lineup, to put them in a better position for the coming season. That's what I've heard you say here and other places. And you've come to the same conclusion that they better be more successful this season than in the past. This is a defining moment for the current regime. I think that that first season, um, 2021, this is 21, 22, 23, 21, they had a tremendous offense. No, 22, they had a tremendous offense. 23, they went the other way and looked for run prevention yep. and brought in uh, defense and some guys who could slap the ball around and, and they were expecting more from their big boys. And then so this year, I think they may finally find a balance between the two. And it's going to help that the left field line is now a foot and a half away from the foul line. The left field stands are a foot and a half away from the foul line and there's less foul territory to see Chapman go make a fabulous running catch down the line. Um, so you could maybe make do with a little less run prevention ability and more balance to your lineup, more more power, more hitting, um, and, and expect more from Bo and, and Vlad Guerrero Jr. And uh, maybe a couple other guys. So yeah, they they do exp they do need to uh, find that balance this year. They do need to plug three of the four holes. I think it's good for them not to have to worry about the starting rotation and the bullpen. I mean, he talked about eight solid relievers plus three guys on the roster that have major league experience, and he's right. Um, and the starting rotation of four, then you have uh, whatever they do with Alec Manoa, which might be a trade or might be just going into spring training and see what he looks like. But yeah, the pitching, they can just put aside for now and then focus on filling the holes, see what they got left, see what they spend money-wise and go from there. But they they are going to do it. They are going to make significant moves. It's just... You know, if they make the right choice. All right. A couple last quick questions. So you have, for those not watching, over Richard's right shoulder, he has the bat flip picture. Is that the defining moment to you in Blue Jay history? In the part of Blue Jay history that began with Joe Carter's home run. Okay. So there was Joe Carter's home run. Then the dark ages of J.P. Ricciardi. And, and then 2013, when they thought they were going somewhere, they were the Vegas favorites. Uh, John Gibbons came back. Um, but 2015, that home run is the moment. That is the moment where an entire... I mean, I had two of my kids at the game and they still talk about it all the time and their friends talk about it all the time 
And uh, yeah, I, I purchased that at uh, an auction. I think it was one of the hospital auctions or whatever. But yeah, that to me, that's the moment. And like just thinking about it, uh, I get goosebumps. So it's it's the Kawhi Leonard shot. Didn't win the championship, but man, it was. Right. So the other photo over his shoulder, his other shoulder is Vladdy and Papa in an Expo jersey. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what just went down in Oakland and what's about to rise out of the ashes in Las Vegas. Because you are a baseball fan. Uh, what are your thoughts on that mess? I'll lead the witness. Yeah, I, I think that the, the difference in the Oakland situation and in the Montreal to Washington to D.C. situation is that one group of fans was apathetic and one group of fans was apoplectic. And, and like in Montreal, they, they major league baseball, the last three years that they took over ownership after contraction failed of the Montreal Expos and Minnesota twins in 0102. When they took over, it was benign neglect of the franchise running the stadium into the ground, running the fans into the ground while the fans stood by and, you know, the, the ratings on TV, the ratings on radio were still very good. Fans still care to this day, but they were run out of town by an ownership that had been trying since the strike to get a deal done to move the franchise. And, and, you know, they played a bunch of games in Puerto Rico in those last two seasons, regular season games. So it's it's a lot different because ownership in L.A. or in Oakland didn't seem to give a damn, and the fans didn't either, you know. And, and so to me, that that's a major difference. Vegas is going to be very successful, but if you feel sorry – I still feel more sorry for the fans in Montreal than I'll ever feel for the fans in Oakland. All right. So I'll prove that I'm not the baseball fan that I said, because I can't get into the X's and O's and the stats. But if I had Rogers money right now, the guy who I would sign between the two is Bo, not Vladdy. The, the, the getting picked, the base running errors drive me absolutely bonkers. Um, party of one. Should we be concerned that one or the other doesn't get a long-term deal this offseason or soon? Um, yeah, I think maybe this offseason might be a little quick because there's so much other stuff. They've got so many other balls in the air. Um, but Bo's locked in until his free agency. Vlad probably doesn't want to sign that two-year deal to equate him with Bo because of he's coming off that season he had last year, and he might run into a whatever another out. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think that it should not be a concern going into the season that neither guy is signed to a long-term deal. I think that they need to be uh, dealt with during the season and then maybe at the end of next season if both like 
Bo could sign before Vlad because Vlad needs to prove himself, and Bo's defense has gotten so much better, and everybody knows what he is as a as a hitter and what he can be. But Vlad can be and needs to prove it. So to me, that's the difference. All right. So we'll wrap it up. You have moved. You are going to give a lot of optimism to those that want Otani in Toronto because you have you have quickly moved from not happening, where I heard you very early on, to it shouldn't happen. So I don't know if it's going to happen. What makes me nervous is I trust you as a baseball guru telling me it shouldn't happen. But the fact that Junior and the folks at Rogers want it makes me nervous that it could because money is a very dangerous thing. And if all it takes is a big bleeping check, the next iPhone release will cover that cost. Um, it, it needs to be a bigger check from Toronto than it would from LA. But that's always going to be the case. That's yeah. We've always had. And I remember where I was living in Detroit when I heard all of a sudden that the Blue Jays landed Roger Clemens. And I was like, wait, what? And this feels like one of those moments. And again, I took a lot of solace in the fact that Richard Griffin said on Overdrive one night, this wasn't happening and why. And I'm hearing a lot more now of this shouldn't happen and here's why. So now you're saying, as that old movie line is, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, dumb and dumber. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, it's been a pleasure. I know I've been hounding you for some time to come on. I really enjoyed this, as I said. Grew up reading you, listening to you on primetime and other places. I love your podcast and Griff the Pitch. Uh, I hope that as we get closer to spring training and these uh, questions have been answered, uh, you will come do it again. Uh, one last word before we go, and I, I did enjoy this. Um, Otani is not signing with the Blue Jays. There we go. It, you, you've heard it first. Definitively, <laughs> he has come back. No longer is it he shouldn't. Now it is he wouldn't. So, okay, so then I'll give you one last one. What's the major move they're going to make? Um, I I honestly think uh, that at the front of that parade is uh, Soto and Brandon Woodruff. Okay. There you have it. We don't usually talk this kind of thing on the podcast, but you've heard it from my favorite baseball writer. Richard, thank you for doing this. I hope you have an awesome weekend, and uh, we will hopefully see you as we get closer to spring training. Thanks, Jonah. I enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed today's talk. Lots of bold predictions there from Richard. If you would like to appear in the press row, please send me a note, either in social media or via email, Jonah at yyzsportsmedia.com or at YYZ Sports Media, wherever you use social media. Uh, I'd like to thank Richard once again. Please follow this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we will see you next time in the press row. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.